Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 162, Captain's Holiday. Welcome to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we spend relaxing quality time with a Star Trek story, plumbing its depths for morals and messages and things we can apply to our lives today. This week, Captain's Holiday. And it's a horgon conclusion that we're going to have a good time. Partly because we're going to a pleasure planet, partly because it's us and we always do, and partly because I'm from the future and I've already read the comments for this week's show. What? Nothing. By the way... For fate to play out, as I already know it will, or has, we need you to send in comments for me to have already read. And there are a few ways you can do that. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Gotta say, though, there's really no need to sweat this, because I know you've already written the comments, but you need to go ahead and get on that so I can have read them. Yet. Now, this is the part in the show where we would normally do trivia. What if I told you, though, John, uh, that this is the first ever episode of Mission Log where you did not do trivia. I would not believe you. I knew you were going to say that. Ken, today's trivia for Captain's Holiday. All right. uh, The episode was written by Ira Stephen Bear. And remember that letter that we ran from Patrick Stewart to Gene Roddenberry a while back in which he wanted more for Picard to do? Um, well, Well, this became known around the office as Patrick's request for, quote, sex and shooting. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> this episode is one example of trying to make that happen um, throughout the, the series to expand Picard's character and give him a little more action. Now, the original draft was a bit different. Um, what we have on screen is a collaboration between Bear and Ronald D. Moore. In a much darker version, Picard would have been confronted with his fear of landing a desk job. Um, in a later draft, the time-traveling Vorgons would have actually repeated one of their earlier scenes, indicating that they would manipulate time to replay events. Now, today's episode was directed by Chip Chalmers, and he was one of two ADs, that's assistant directors, working on the show, and he ended up directing four next-gen episodes, and he'll be back for more after this particular series ends. Um, Ken, did you notice that there is an Andorian in the group of aliens on Risa? I, I, don't did, know if- I did not notice that. So there's a shot early on in the episode, um, kind of past where Picard is lounging with his book, and there are people sitting out on a patio, and we see the back of an Andorian. Um, We only saw one briefly in The Offspring not that long ago, Uh, but Rick Berman was unhappy with it, too much of a uh, a BEM, and if you remember from the animated series, that means a bug-eyed monster. It just felt like it looked a little too much like a 1950s little green man from outer space. They had been toying with electronics to articulate the antenna, but it, it wasn't very successful, so unfortunately we can say goodbye to the Andorians for now. All right, uh, the character Vash um, actually would have been pronounced differently. Uh, We have Patrick Stewart's accent to thank for that, um, calling Vash Vash. Um, Originally, they uh, named that character after a casting director, Susan Vash, who was friends with the Bears. Um, But uh, instead, she became Vash in this episode. Now, let's talk about guest stars. Uh, Michael Champion. (laughs) Very unlikely name um he's the guy playing baratus uh, one of the vorgons and i know i know what you're thinking ken his last name sounds totally fake yeah like yours and it is yeah yeah, yeah. well uh <laughs> unlike mine his last name is fake uh his real name is michael campbell oh. and he started out more as a singer songwriter before deciding to change his last name to something way way cooler to help his acting career and he picked champion wait a minute you're telling me that your last name is actually Champion. It, it actually is. That's that's not my stage name. Huh. Yeah. What's your stage name? 
<laughs> Never mind. We can talk about that later. Go ahead. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, we also have Karen Landry as Aujur. She's the other Vorgon in this episode. Now, Karen has worked consistently since the late 1970s, primarily in TV, guest roles on shows like uh, MASH, JAG, Six Feet Under, Beverly Hills 90210, and recurring role on St. Elsewhere. She's married to actor Chris Mulkey, who has also had a very long career, maybe best known and uh, most recognizable to fans of Twin Peaks, on which he played Hank. Now we have Max Grudenchik as Sovak. No, that is not a Vulcan name. Max is playing a Ferengi here. And uh, he was born in New York and played semi-pro baseball before making the switch to acting. Uh, early roles for him included guest roles on 30-something and Night Court. And not long after this episode of TNG came out, he was working on his first major feature, Barton Fink. Now, we'll hear much more from Max in the future. He has got a long gig with Star Trek coming up. There will be much more to say about him then. We also have Jennifer Hedrick as Vash. Now, before Next Gen, she had some good guest roles, including a recurring gig on Ellie Law. Ken will save that for the uh, Ellie Law podcast that you're hosting. (laughs) Now, they must have liked her on this episode of Next Gen because uh, Jennifer does come back as Vash Vash in two more shows. And uh, after that, you can see her in roles on X-Files, Sliders, NCIS 24, and others. And finally, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Deirdre Emershine. She played Joval on this episode, the brunette on Risa, who asks Picard about his Horgon. Now, she has appeared in a lot of shows that feature very beautiful women like uh, HBO's Dream On. She had a a long-running gig on Dallas in the early 90s. Uh, She also appeared on Silk Stockings and uh, other shows like that. Now, she does come back to Star Trek where she has a bit part on the Deep Space Nine episode, Trials and Tribulations. Of all of the pleasure planets in all of the systems, Picard had to beam down to this one. Let us let Ken tell us what happened. Prologue. A couple of non-humans are on Risa, the vacation planet, looking for Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Not only can the planet's computer not find him there, the computer can't even find his reservation. But the non-humans are convinced he will be there. On the Enterprise, Captain Picard has just returned from two weeks negotiating a trade agreement between... Two planets that don't get along but apparently need to trade. Picard seems tired and grumpy, and Counselor Troy confides to Commander Riker that Picard needs a vacation. Act 1. Dr. Crusher says Captain Picard needs a vacation. To Captain Picard. He says he'll think about it. In the turbo lift, Commander Horndog... Did I say Horndog? I meant Riker. Tells Captain Picard that he knows the perfect spot for the captain's holiday. Picard says he's not going on holiday. Got it? Got it, says Riker. Anyway, the place is called Risa. Warm breezes, amazing food, and just like an Elvis movie, Blue Hawaii. I'm sorry, girls, girls, girls. Yeah, thanks. Not going. On the bridge, Deanna Troy plays the winning card. She says her mother may be at Starbase 12 while the Enterprise is in for repairs. Deanna's mother says she's especially looking forward to seeing Captain Picard. Or so Deanna says, she says. Picard gets it. Everyone is on board with the whole vacation scheme. And he'll get no rest until he goes. So he goes. But Riker asks for one favor. There's a thing called a Horgon. Picard should have no trouble finding it. After declining Lieutenant Commander Worf's suggestion of a security detail, Picard turns the ship over to Riker and beams down to Risa. The breeze. The foliage. The brunette who's suddenly kissing Picard? Actually, she just started kissing him as this loudly dressed Ferengi rounded the corner. Picard says she's mistaken him for someone else. She agrees, welcomes him to Risa, and the two part ways. Picard under the watchful eye of the two non-humans from the prologue. Act 2. All Picard wants to do is sit by... whatever everybody's sitting by and read his book. But women keep coming up and offering... um... companionship. And Picard doesn't get why. Well, one finally explains, you're displaying the Horgon. To display it is to indicate that you were looking for Jamaharon, which is apparently ricin for doing the deed. Bumping uglies. Making the beast with two backs, if you will. <laughs> and Riker. With the Horgon safely hidden, Picard goes back to reading. For five seconds. 
That's when the loudly dressed Ferengi approaches. I know you're working with her, he tells Picard. Tell her I want the disc pack. Patience, and then Picard gets belligerent. I don't know what woman you're talking about. I'm here on vacation. Go away. The Ferengi assures Picard that this is not over. Both the disc and the woman are his. Then he's gone. With the Ferengi off and away, Picard closes his eyes and settles himself quietly in the sun. For five seconds. That's when the brunette from Picard's arrival walks up, starts chatting him up. She's not looking for Jamaharon, but she does seem to want to know Picard. Not in the biblical sense, just in the tell-me-about-you kind of way. Her name is Vosh, by the way. Doesn't take Picard long to realize that she is the woman the Ferengi was talking about. And here's the Ferengi now, saying that if she returns the disc to him, all will be forgiven. Picard tells the Ferengi, Sovak his name is, that he doesn't know Vosh and he doesn't want to. Sovak and Vosh argue about the disc some more, though Vosh doesn't have it either, having slipped it secretly into the pocket of Picard's robe. In his room, Picard surprises the two non-humans from the prologue. They are Vorgons. They are from the 27th century. They've traveled 300 years into the past to find Picard, but they'll have to wait another couple of minutes for an ad from Little Chocolate Donuts. Act 3. Picard doesn't know whether he believes this whole future business, but what do they want with him? One of the Vorgons says Picard has the Tox Utat, and they need it. It's a quantum phase inhibitor, capable of halting all nuclear reaction within a star invented in the 27th century. Criminals tried to steal the Utat, but the scientist who invented it took it back to the 22nd century and hid it. But it belongs in their time, not Picard's, and they need it back. They were the security team sent to retrieve the Utat when it first went into the past, but they couldn't find it. Back in their own time, they did a bit of research and found a mention that Picard had found some thing of unknown origin on Risa. This, they figure, was the Utat. There's just one problem. Picard hasn't found it yet. But they say he will. To them, it's already history. The Vorgons beam away, and just as they do, Picard finds the disc Vosh slipped into his robe, and he goes looking for Vosh. Her room is a mess. Sovak's been coming in and ransacking it, looking for the disc. The disc, which Picard guesses, has to do with the Tox Utat. Vosh says she was the personal assistant of a Professor Estragon, while Sovak was a sometimes associate of the professors, helping out with some of their less ethical needs. Estragon figured out the location of the Utat right before he died. Now Vosh and Sovak are racing for it. Sovak wants to sell it to the highest bidder, while Vosh wants to turn it over to the Daystrom Institute for study. Picard tells Vosh that he'll go get the Utat for her. It's too dangerous for her with Sovak dogging her every step. That's a non-starter for Vosh. Instead, they'll go together. But they're not even out of the hotel lobby when Sovak catches them at the end of his phaser. And he's got news for Picard. Vosh is not to be trusted. Sovak actually paid Vosh to steal the disc for him. She did the first part, the stealing the disc part. So the second part, giving it to Sovak, was eh, not so much a thing for her. She used his money to get to Risa. Here's the thing, though. Sovak is an idiot. Picard and Vosh have no trouble overpowering him, knocking him unconscious, and setting off on the road to the Utat. Act 4. Eleven kilometers from where they think the Utat will be, Picard and Vosh decide to pitch a tent. Camp! They decide to make camp! And Vosh has a confession to make. Sovak did pay Vosh to hand over the disc. Though the way she figures it, he deserved the old double cross because she needed his money and didn't want to give him the thing for which he'd paid. Picard and Vosh decide to go to sleep. Then after a bit of level three flirting, they decide to go to sleep together. If you know what I mean. Though we fade out on a kiss, indications are they're about to make the beast with Jamaharon. Sometime later, maybe five minutes, maybe seven? <clears throat> Sometime later, Picard and Vosh find the place where the Tox Utat should be. Now to dig. But before they even start, the Vorgons appear, and Picard has to admit to a double cross of his own. He plans to turn the Tox Utat over to these 27th century security officers. Not so fast, says Sovak. The Utat will be his. He found their location by reading the disc Vosh had left in her room. She says she burned it, though Sovak says only the outer casing was destroyed. Now dig. Act 5. There's been a lot of digging, and not a lot of Utat. The thing is not there. Estragon must have been mistaken. 
Sovak is practically insane at this point, driven mad by failure. This made the Vorgons beam out. Sovak begins digging maniacally, and Picard and Vosh take off. Back at the hotel, Vosh is crestfallen. Five years of her life wasted. Picard puts the moves on her, but Vosh says she needs to be alone. In his room, Picard is packing when the Enterprise calls. They're ready to beam him aboard when he's ready. Picard says he needs a few minutes. Meanwhile, Riker, set up a transporter code 14 and have it ready at my signal. In the lobby, Vosh is on her way, way far away when Picard calls out. Sorry to see you go, just one thing. Tell me where you've hidden the Tox Utat. He figures the whole thing at the dig site was a sham. She'd already been there and gotten the Utat. But she had to have Sovak see them fail to find it so he'd finally stop following her. She then produces the Utat. A dangerous piece of the future. And speaking of the future, here are the Vorgons. Come to retrieve what's theirs. Hey, wait, says Vosh. Vorgons? Professor Estragon said it was a pair of Vorgons who tried to steal the Utat originally. Could have been these two. For the first time, Picard questions the whole security people thing. And for the first time, they pull a weapon on him. Vosh puts herself between Picard and the Vorgons, and they fire on her, stunning her. Picard calls out for Riker. Transporter code 14, two-second delay, mark! Then he sets down the Utat and moves away, just in time to see the Utat half-transport, half-explode. Now, bummer, say the Vorgons. History recorded that you destroyed the Utat, and you did. You have fulfilled your destiny all too well, Picard. And with that, the Vorgons beam away. Picard is backing again. Really, this time. He and Vosh have a sort of typical-for-them goodbye. She has archaeological plans that could get her killed. Picard deems her insane for even considering it. And it's obvious that whether they're in love, there's definitely something there. Back aboard the Enterprise, everything's fine. The end. Oh, Ken. Yes, John. Oh, Ken, Ken, have we reached a turning point with the Ferengi? Because up until now, we, we've had ferocious Ferengi, we've had conniving Ferengi, we've had Ferengi with laser whips, and they've changed it a little over the last couple of seasons. Now we get Ferengi with access to affordable tropical loungewear. <laughs> Can I tell you how I was almost horrified how little um, loud shirts and beach towels have changed? Yeah. In the three or four hundred years between now and then. I'm pretty sure that I did a freeze frame on that beach towel that Picard picks up, because I think I might have that. <laughs> I know I had one a lot like it. Yeah. I yeah, didn't have that one. But... Pink, you know, geometric shapes on it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it, it's exactly the same 300 years from now, 400 years from now. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. That's really, that's really good. Have we reached a turning point with Ferengi? Um, well, we've definitely reached a turning point with this Ferengi. Oh, yeah. Although, you know, you could see this Ferengi and the one who was, you know, so concerned about where it was he was going to sit at the negotiating table. <laughs> right. Hanging right. out together. These are not the Ferengi, no, with the laser whips and the hanging people upside down and all that stuff. No, no. Yeah, very interesting that, that we've seen a bit of a, a change in that character, a bit of an evolution there. Um, the computer on Risa at the very beginning, pretty snarky. We have a listener, Gary, who pointed that out. I thought it was a good observation. Hmm. I didn't see it as snarky, but I, I will say I think it's a little free with information. I mean, I understand we're more open and transparent, theoretically, in the 23rd, 24th century. I get that. Yeah. Um, I also understand that it's a pleasure planet, and, you know, if, and what the computer wants to do is make sure that everybody's happy. Right, right. But maybe, you know, <laughs> you're not cleared for that information, or I'm sorry, I can't give out information for guests, or why don't you leave a message, and if slash when Captain Picard comes... Yeah, it was very much sort of a, like, I could have just walked up and gone, hey, where's Captain Picard? And the computer would be like, oh, he's over there. Right, right. <laughs> I, I kind of thought about that, that, you know, decades and decades ago on uh, cruise ships, they would publish, uh, uh, like, a, a booklet that would be a, a guest log, and everybody could get it so they could see who all was on board. And that was kind of the thing to do, is you'd open it up and you'd go, oh, look, you know, uh, Mr. Smith is here visiting from Boston or whatever, and you actually know who was there with you. Mm. And then I thought about uh, the scene in North by Northwest, Cary Grant goes up to the hotel and like, oh, yeah, uh, that guy uh, is supposed to be in room, oh, uh, what was it again? Oh, yeah, here's the key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just that that moment in that movie does not work anymore if you try to do a remake. And in a show like this, where you can just go up to a computer and say, "Oh yeah, uh, where's that Picard guy?" Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust that computer at all. 
Well, uh, no, apparently you can trust that computer unless well, you're the person who's trying to stay hidden, in which case, yeah, yeah, yeah. not so much. We also got uh, a couple of people uh, who pointed out that, uh, yes, the, the two ensigns on Deck 39, there are probably a couple of guys peeling potatoes, and their names are probably John and Ken. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun idea. Seriously, you know, if, if, when the Akutas go back and do all of their remakes again, or right. all of their, you know, remasters for 4K right. or 10K or whatever we're up to by that point, <laughs> we seriously have to have parts. We should. We, we should. Yeah. should be those two guys. Yeah. Um, now, Troy suggests that Picard takes a vacation and she uh, fires up, what, holodeck program number 47 and away he goes to San Francisco. No, I'm kind of shocked that he's beaming down to a real place this time. I, I thought surely maybe the moratorium had gone out on holodeck stories, at least briefly. To maybe. Say, no, we well, have to get Picard out of here for once. There's a, well, I mean, yeah, I guess everybody has to suspend disbelief too much if he's on the holodeck. I mean, it becomes a holodeck story if Picard can actually die on the holodeck, right? Right. Then it's right. not about Picard anymore. It's about the fact that Picard could die because the ship has gone haywire again. Right. Um, I found it really, uh, I found it really interesting though that, um, Actually, we're going to talk about this in a bit. I found it interesting that, that Picard's idea of fun is nobody else's idea of fun. Therefore, it's not fun for Picard either. But we, we can talk about that in a second. I'm glad yeah. you said number 47. I laughed in the middle of the recap, and I don't normally do that. But it's because right. something occurred to me that I had meant to note earlier. What was that? Code 14. Yeah, right. Is yeah. blow something up. What's code? <laughs> what are codes 1 through 13? <laughs> right. Like, right. it's code, like, code 12. Okay, wait, code 14. That's the one where we sort of, like, teleport it. And blo- What's the one where we, like, half teleport it, but we leave the head there? <laughs> Do you remember which one that one is? Can somebody get Chief O'Brien on the phone or whatever uh, passes for a phone these days? Code 9 is just like, just set it on fire where it is. Just set it on fire. <laughs> it's, I don't, yeah, kind of odd. I, I love it when Star Trek, or really anything for that matter, invents a new thing that is only used that one time. But when that new thing, because there was another one, and I can't remember which one it was now, but yeah. we talked about it on an episode of Star Trek as well, where th- there was a certain code, and I think it meant death. Well, no, and, there, there was the, the there was the transporter code in um, uh, with uh, Garth of Izar, where you know they had beamed down to the the penal colony, and Kirk had to give the you know night. Uh, no, 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 that was wasn't it. it because that was just a security code. By the way, I was supposed Which to yell. Which they never used again. I was supposed to yell Lord Garth on that. Well, yeah, you were. And you I were. didn't. I apologize. I feel like I've let, uh, I feel like I've yeah. let the universe down. No, I think it was some death thing, but whatever. It's sort of like in uh, in Revenge of the Sith. He's like, execute Order 66. Okay, which one is oh, that? Yeah. I can't remember. Yep. Which one is Order 66? Have we done one through 65 yet? Is it supposed <laughs> to be a sequential thing? We literally never use those guys. You know? <laughs> exactly. Oh, somebody get the manual. I can't remember what that is. <laughs> um, we do have books. Captain Picard still reading books, real books, not on pads or Kindles or anything. Maybe it's the one under that glass case in his ready room. No, that was, like, that, that was all the works of Shakespeare, so I don't think so. Oh, why not? Why not? He because he didn't have all the works of Shakespeare with him. <laughs> Riker read the things. It's like, what is Something dumb, sciencey. <laughs> James Joyce. Duh. I'm gonna uh, slip a copy of. <laughs> Sorry, let's <laughs> start naming off porn magazines that don't even exist anymore. I feel certain, and mm-hmm. certainly won't exist in the 24th century. But if they do, you know, Riker's got a stash of them under his. Like, oh my, what? Mm-hmm. Riker Just would know. Incredible horn dog man. Incredible yeah. horn dog man. I, in fact, I yeah. loved. I did love actually that whole thing where he's like, "Have I mentioned how imaginative the Rysian women are, sir?" And it's Troy who says, too often, Commander. And I'm I'm sort of like, okay, maybe that's jealousy on her part because, you know, they did have this thing. Or maybe she's like, seriously, dude, you were just, you are not. Yeah. You are, you are second in command of a starship. Try to act like somebody who's 22, 23, as opposed to 17 or 18. What do you say? But of course he knows about Risa. Of course. And of course he's just going to hound Picard about this over and over and over again. I mean, Riker is a guy you do not want to be in your bachelor party group because he will make all the wrong decisions for the entire group. Yeah. 
you know, well, one imagines that there might not have been a Horgon before he got there. <laughs> right, right. And they had to, come up, had to come up with some subtle way for people to let other people know because Riker just showed up, you know, <laughs> dropped trowel and started walking around. It's just sort of... Like, oh, well, can we just have, like, a statue or... Exactly. Or something like where people can quietly say that what they want is yeah. <laughs> whatever is not moving too fast. Let's talk about life on Risa a little bit because uh, a couple of things that I noticed. Uh, Vash is getting the world's worst massage. I'm sorry, who is? Vash. Oh, oh, I didn't know. Okay, My yeah. No, Vash, yes, is the, world, Vash the world's is worst the massage? World's worst massage. She's okay. going to come back from, uh, from a, a scene change, and there's a guy just like – touching her leg like he's like he's never touched human flesh before just yeah. like sort of pressing and it's it, it was a little weird there are a lot of strange shots and strange direction in this episode by the way the the women who are walking around who are kind of sort of in quotes topless under those plastic jackets you know mm-hmm. they're actually wearing flesh colored prosthetics underneath that kind of you know because i'm sure that you know if you were like me and you were 14 years old or <laughs> watching this air for the first time you're like are they did they could hmm, did they really get away with it well no they they tried to kind of you know meet standards and practices halfway by having something revealing but actually having their actors covered um another thing uh, i'm sure that you notice we still have discs in the future yeah this, this being a very shiny little cd-rom looking thing they're very cool future looking discs oh yeah well they're they're much more shiny yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah. when they when they said, um, you know, when the Vorgons were describing it, it's, it's a crystal thing that fits like in the palm of your hand. I was like, oh, my gosh, Vash has that. But now it turns out that was the disc. It's another yeah. crystal thing that fits in the palm of your hand. Interestingly, uh, the Toxutot doesn't actually fit in the palm of your hand. No, a little big. For the <laughs> but yeah. the disc does. Yeah. yeah. So you can see why I was confused. Um, Sovak, again, not a Vulcan name. Uh, now, I, I was kind of trying to figure him out, but... I got the impression that in the shorthand of this episode, he is a bad guy because he's a Ferengi. Mm-hmm. And Picard literally punches him in the face, even though he knows next to nothing about him or whatever the actual conflict is between him and Vash. Well, John, you heard Vash tell him, though. Oh, right. Just like, I mean, you heard <laughs> so the people that's... from the future say, we're from the future and we're security people. And he's like, oh, good enough for me. Well, mostly, but we'll actually talk about that in a second. There's one other thing about the future people, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think it was it was when we were watching Miri, like okay. 175 years ago. Right. When we were watching Miri, uh, we talked about the fact that the kids were able to sneak in and take all their communicators. And what an amazing like future it's going to be when somebody says, you know, we can actually just sort of pin this to these guys. Mm-hmm. And and it would be harder for you know some kid, some twenty eight year old, fourteen year old kid to sneak <laughs> right, in right. and steal this. Uh, so why don't we do that? And that's how we sort of get the communicators that we get in next gen. Boy, a teleporter is just built into your head, huh? Right. Yeah, yeah. the Vorgons have got something going on there, and it, it takes them through space and time. One assumes mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't yeah. actually know. It might just be taking them through time. Right. Although. How would they do? So then they they actually have to walk a day earlier or a day later to get to the cave and then push the thing so that they travel in time. I assume it's a space and time traveler, but yeah, I'm looking forward to having one of those built into my head one day. Should the welcome to Risa information packet not have explained about the Horgon? Or is the captain of the 1701D not a read the manual kind of guy? So I mentioned this a little bit in the last segment, but I got to know what's up with the homogenous nature of fun as far as the Enterprise crew is concerned. Mm. Um, Picard wants to watch the Enterprise get overhauled, which I think would be awesome. That would be super cool. Uh, but nobody else does, so that's no fun. Picard does. But nobody, no, nope, that's no fun. And Picard you know, has a conference that he wants to go to. That's no fun. Mm. The last thing you need to do is think, mister, <laughs> says the doctor, basically. Uh, Picard wants to read. That is way no fun, and I'm with everybody on that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially what he's reading, yeah. Especially what he's reading. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can't remember the name of those books. They were so boring. <laughs> um, I'll grant you, most of that doesn't sound like something, you know, that, that most people would want to do. But, you know, for me personally, sitting by the pool all day is not something I want to do. And no. and that may be weird. I don't know, because I know there are lots of people who think that's awesome. First time I went to Vegas, first time I went to Vegas, all I wanted to do 
was go to every casino because mm-hmm. I, had, I, had, I had seen them on TV for years. I'd never been. They're like, you know, they're from movies and they're from commercials and they're from, you know, all sorts of things. I want to go to every casino. And, and, the, and the work associate that I was traveling with, all he wanted to do was go sit by the pool. Right. And it wasn't even, we weren't even like in a good hotel. So, I mean, it was just like <laughs> sitting by a pool, which he had done before in other parts of the world. I feel fairly certain he had sat by much better pools. Right. But no, that, that, that was the thing he wanted to do. Um, I was just surprised that, you know, Picard has all of these things that he's like, oh, well, this would be nice. And everybody's like, no, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> do, do what I think would be nice. This is how we have fun in the 24th century. We <laughs> exactly. must comply. Exactly. Yeah. And yet, and yet he was like, you got nothing. So like, you know, Worf says, I'm going to send the guy with you. And Picard's like, yeah, no. Right. Right. <laughs> if, if I really, if I had to get away, I'm getting away from you. That's for sure. First of all, I'm with you on the pool thing. I can take about an hour at most. Mm-hmm. And, and even then I have to be covered in about a half inch thick layer of uh, sunscreen. Right. So it's no fun for anybody, myself included. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's not my idea of fun at all. And I actually kind of appreciated that on RISA, uh, because it was all filmed indoors in a soundstage, yep. that there's just like no direct sunlight on anything. Um, everybody's very well covered and can just sort of sit there on a chair. Maybe there's some water splashing nearby a little bit, but he's got that big beach towel for no reason. Yeah, um, he's got yeah. two. He's got two of them actually. Two of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. one's the one that he dries himself off when somebody you know splashes him inexplicably because again we've seen no water. Right. <laughs> and the other, the other is where he hides his horgon. Hey, right. hey, watch out! <laughs> gotta have a big towel for a big horgon. You do. You do. Um, so I guess all right. Speaking of Horgon, I, I guess we should touch again here upon Star Trek's version of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And and this feels like a Gene Roddenberry episode to me, or, or at least elements of Gene's influence on this. Sex is a sort of a thing that happens, and, and it could just as well be ordering something from the menu at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess, except that, I mean, it's interesting that Picard wants nothing from the restaurant then. Well, he doesn't, but Riker sure does. Right? Riker's like, please bring me back a to-go order. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it, you know, it's fascinating. We talked during TOS about how we had this idea of love him and leave him, Kirk. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, during TOS, he was not that. And then we talked when we got into Next Gen about how Riker was kind of like the the. Um, Evolution, let's say. Yeah, well, the evolution really of we're moving from Kirk to Picard. We're moving from TOS to next gen. And we have yeah. we have sort of this a little bit of a holdout in Riker. Um, but, we're, but we're coming to a more evolved time. Uh, Riker has actually become more horndog. Oh, he has. Yeah. As this has gone on. I mean, he is. And, and it's, it's, it's funny to see him written that way. I don't know that we're actually saying anything about his character. I mean, when it's time for Riker's real character to show up, Riker's real character shows up. Yeah. But the rest of the time, he's just looking to get happy. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, we, we started out with the idea that he had had this relationship with Deanna. Yes. Um, and that, that really was the defining thing about those characters. And, and not unlike what they were modeled after, which was Decker and Ilea uh, from Phase 2, then the motion picture. Now, I mean, we've seen complex relationships on Star Trek. We, we Like I said, Riker and Deanna, and then you've got Loaxana and all of her bizarreness, Kirk and Carol Marcus, Sarah and Amanda, just to name a very few. But we always see that this coexists in a universe where it's pretty much acceptable that people pursue their sexuality in a number of ways. There are holodecks, there are planets like Rubicon 3 from Justice, and now we've got Risa, this new place, where that's sort of like what, what is accepted and understood about going to Risa. And, and I think the difficulty here is that we could look at this as a liberated, progressive kind of sexuality where there is no more shame or guilt or judgment, and that would be the the Gene Roddenberry sort of speaking in, in very grand terms and you know very broad strokes to say, no, here's what it's like in the 24th century. Sex isn't shameful or guilty, and there is no judgment, so go. Mm-hmm. Or we could look at this as still that kind of like 
post-war macho male fantasy thing where, where the women are just sort of flowing like from a tap and are purely there for the pleasure of the people who come in for a visit. And, and there's something really – there was something that struck us weird about that in Justice mm-hmm. and something that strikes me a little weird in this one. I, I feel like – Maybe it's it's certainly not a bad step, and, and I certainly think it's acceptable for Star Trek to go there and to explore that part of life in the 24th century. But maybe it's because of the time that it was made, whether you're looking at 1966 Star Trek or 1987 Star Trek, that no matter what, it's going to feel a little dated. It's going to feel a little incomplete hmm. to an audience or at least an audience of me and you analyzing this the way that we do now. It's such an idea in um, in science fiction of a certain time, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, w- when you go utopian science fiction, everybody's getting laid if they oh, want yeah. to. And it's Logan's not, Run and, yeah. yeah Logan's Run and some of the, uh, I want to say some of the uh, Asimov stuff, some of the robot novels, maybe. Yeah. Um, that, that's if they want to. I mean, I, 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 really quickly, I feel mm-hmm. like men are sort of represented the same way here because you said they're, you know, women are, are free-flowing. Mm-hmm. Like tap water. Um, men are as well. I mean, that horrible massage sure. you were talking about from Vosh, one assumes that if she had a horgon, then he's like, so, Jamaharon? What do you say? <laughs> right? Because you got the horgon, so I'm assuming. Right. Um, it, but, I mean, it, what it is, I mean, first of all, it's a male-dominated cast. It's a male-dominated, like, production show. Yeah. And it's television in the 90s. Um, yeah. Male-dominated show and industry. Uh, the ratio of pleasure women to pleasure men is obviously very high. That said, I mean, oh, Heinlein. Mm-hmm. Heinlein was all free love all the time. Not all the time, because you had things like uh, like Starship Troopers. But, I mean, anything with Jubal Hershaw. Am I pronouncing that right? Hershaw? Sure. It, 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 well, if you've read Heinlein, you know the character I'm talking about, and you know how weird it is to read it now, because he's, like, he's got three women who live there. I don't think any of them are married to him, but I think they're all in love with him, and he's in love with them, and it's like a, it's a communal sexual thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's weird. I mean, yes, to somebody sitting down for their very first science fiction ever, they may be freaked out by it, or it may be titillating, or it may be, um, I don't, it, 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 it's, you're right, it's dated, but only because there was so much of it in certain types of science fiction. Well, it, it's strange. It, it's dated, but at the same time, I kind of go, okay, I, I know, I know what the thought process was behind this. Mm-hmm. I know that they're trying to sexy up next gen. Fine. That that's the reality of, you know, ratings and viewers and all, but I also know that they're sort of justifying it in their heads and saying in the 21st century we're okay with different kinds of displays of sexuality and we're okay with not judging people for what they do. So if a pleasure planet exists, so be it. This is how it works. And it's more so the idea that that is there and the idea that we're okay with it. Than necessarily how it plays out in the reality of a TV show broadcast in 1990. Hmm. I, you know, I it, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic and one that I wonder about. There's an episode of uh, there's an episode coming up, and we don't cross the timeline, but it was it was something that in my 20s when I was watching uh, Next Gen for the first time when it was still being broadcast. Mm-hmm. There was there's an episode where I, I guess uh, there there are these people and they're sort of asexual, but one of them falls in love with Riker because you know it's sure. Riker and Riker falls in love with her. And I guess we're going to call her a her, right? At that point, and it becomes this big thing about you know can she do this? Should she do this? All this stuff. And I was talking about it with friends of mine, and I was like, yeah, I totally get that culture because you know dealings with women were particularly difficult for me in my twenties. <laughs> And I'm like, it seems to me that that's actually a natural evolution of things. Okay, well, so there are two possible evolutions then. Either sex is not a thing because nobody has it, or right. sex is not a thing because everybody has it. Otherwise, you've got, you, you've got the fights and the battles and the whatever. I think there is actually something – I think there is something real to be considered there. And by the way, I don't think I would feel the same way now that I did when I was in my 20s. Sure. But there's a, there, there, there are real issues to be dealt with there, but it goes immediately to being – 
can't even think of the right word, not purient, but I mean, it, it goes, it, it immediately becomes like, <laughs> right, oh, right. oh, it's yeah. dirty. Oh, it's not, yeah. oh, it's not dirty. Okay. No, it's not dirty, but it really is dirty. It was so hot. I thought they were naked <laughs> under that thing. I mean, it's, right. it's, right. but you're not going to get 48 minutes of, so listen about sex in the 24th century. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. I mean, it, it is the reality of production versus what is the message. I mean, and, and that's, you know, for three years now, that's what we do is we say, okay, here's the reality of a production, but what's the idea behind it? What's the thought yeah. behind it? And and to me, just the very idea that we're dealing with sexuality and, and here it is just kind of a, it, it is a surface glimpse, but I get what they're trying to say, even if it doesn't play out exactly right or at least in in hindsight we can kind of look at it and go eh, okay how does this really work <laughs> you know i will say this though it's important that we have vash in the story because not that there is anything wrong with picard doing whatever he pleases while on holiday on this planet rise that is made for holidays mm-hmm. um but it's important that we have a strong mature female character here to balance out everyone else who is essentially window dressing you know, it is a great stroke that we have her there to be that and to be that for Picard. Um, change topics a little bit here. Did the time travel element bother you at all? <laughs> uh, yes and no. I mean, I okay. love I love time travel stories. So do I. But if this yeah. is already history for the Vorgons, you know, how can they hope to change it? Right. Um, except they think they can. It'd be like some robot thinking you might be able to get feelings one day even though he knows he never will um i love the movie minority report uh, specifically for the minority report angle there's a lot i think to love in that movie sure but the minority report angle is always interesting to me um the twins and agatha if you haven't seen the movie i'm not going to spoil it um they tend to see the same things like so and so they can see when a murder is going to happen they they tend to see the same things but occasionally one will see something different, and that's the minority report. So two of them will see the same thing. One won't. That one is the minority report. And 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 so that's it's discovering that that they find out, oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe things are not exactly what we thought they were. Right. thing is, though, that's trying to change the future. That's trying to stop something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, the Vorgons, um, it's happened. It's already happened to them. And they in that same history where somebody writes about Picard – they have to be written in there as well, or they have to be the ones writing it. I mean, that's the weird thing. I mean, they almost need like a Marty McFly picture that they carry around with them to find out, <laughs> right, like, right. like sort of a time barometer to let them know if they're, you know, on or off. Or they need like an alt history of Vorgonia, Vor, <laughs> yes, yes. wherever they're from. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, it kind of bothered me in that respect, but then I realized I was taking the time travel part far too seriously. Yeah, and, and they just decided not to in this episode. I mean, that's the thing. The, the Vorgans know they could come back whenever they want. Mm-hmm. They say they can come back whenever they want, and, and then they don't because that scene got cut because it would have been too confusing, maybe. Picard destroys the Maltese Falcon. I, I mean, the, the Taksutat <laughs> in, in one timeline. But the Vorgans could just keep coming back right before that moment. Oh, hey, Vorgans 1 and 2. We're Vorgans 3 and 4. We're here to stop you from not stopping Picard in the next two seconds when he uh, enacted transporter code number 14. Or we're going to get here a week before because now we know where the Toxutat is. I mean, it, it really does just keep going on and on and on and on. And uh, and that's not a show that I would want to watch. <laughs> Do you remember the episode of The X-Files where, they, where there was like some guy who was going around, like a 70 or 80-year-old guy, I think, going around killing all these young people? No, and I, I want to say one of them was him, and the problem was he was killing these people who it turns out were were working on time travel. Whoa! And 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 the reason that he was doing that was because the future no longer had any hope hmm. because people could keep going back in time and screwing with things and changing things, and so he had this idea that he was going to kill the people who had invented time travel and thus you know actually create a future Excellent. with hope once again. Um, huh. And that's an interesting idea with these uh, with, with the Vorgons. It seemed to yeah. me I, I couldn't help but think about that because if you're constantly fighting to go back and do this thing, you you have no life at that point. Yeah. But then, did they have something special, or could the Vorgons always do that? Because if the Vorgons could always do that. It seems to me that you'd end up with something like uh, something like First Contact, 
where it's just like, oh, look, our planet never evolved because our planet has always had this. Our planet has always had this amazing technology that was brought to us from what they used to call the 27th century. But now we just call always been here, (laughs) (laughs) ever unchanging uh, the way it is and was and always will be. Yeah. Um, I have I have a I have a bone to pick with Picard in this episode. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Kind of like the bone that I had to pick. I think with Picard in an episode before, and I know with G- uh, James T. Kirk before, he's got a bit of head of the table itis. Mm-hmm. Um, see also Kirk and let that be your last battlefield. The Vorgons show up and say, "We are authorities from the future." <laughs> and Picard says, "Well, I don't know about this future business." Okay, the the authority part he's got no problem with. <laughs> right, right. Doesn't even question it. Doesn't even, yeah. how do I know? No, there is no how do I know. Wait a minute, future, what? But if you tell me you're an authority, well, I'm an authority, and that tends to be how I say it. I'm Captain Jean-Luc Picard. And nobody goes, let me see some ID. Although he does wear the pips, you know, so <laughs> they can, and the braids. So they can tell. Yeah. He can't tell with them, but they're just like, hey, no, no, we're security from the future. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, let me go get that dangerous thing for you. <laughs> but see, that, that's just the thing, though. So Picard is going with that. He, he's going with the idea that the frame game must be a bad guy or up to no good. Mm-hmm. And then Picard just goes with Vasha's suggestion that they actually don't know anything about the Vorgon. She sort of reminds him at the end, like, how do you know? Oh, yeah, I guess I don't know, even though I've been here with you for days and had a lot of time to think this thing through. He destroys something that he knows nothing about. Yeah. Because it feels right. Well, he has heard <laughs> stories, but yes. Yeah. I mean, he just he adds up the stories. Uh, okay, maybe now this feels right in this moment. What if it's the thing that he will need desperately in the future? Mm. Or what if destroying it destroys everything in the five block radius? Or yeah. or a That's five no system good. radius? <laughs> Either one of those is no good. <laughs> Either one of those is no good. Yeah. I get what you're saying. There may be reasons to stop all nuclear reaction inside a star. But I can, I mean, that's one of those technologies where you'd think, yeah, but if that falls in the wrong hands, mm-hmm. I really love the fact that, you know, Vash says, well, how do you know these are, these guys are who they say? And he's like, oh, well, I assume they have proof. <laughs> <laughs> you do have proof, don't you? Exactly. And then- yes. What do you think? Everybody gets one of these teleporters in their head, please. <laughs> A Ferengi driven mad. A pair of thieves from the future thwarted. A Weljamaharon captain, and an equally Weljamaharon archaeologist. A lot happened in this episode. So what can we take away? Well, we've already done this part of the show a million times. (laughs) But I guess we should go ahead and do it again this time so that uh, the prophecy can be complete or fate can do whatever it does or whatever. Time to figure out the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode Captain's Holiday and whether the episode holds up. Mr. Champion, if that is in fact your name, uh, Captain's Ken, Holiday. I, <laughs> I, I hate talking to Future Ken. Yeah. Because Future Ken already knows. <laughs> That's true. You know, and Future Ken will just keep coming back and over and over again to, to set it right. Um, it, here's the thing about Captain's Holiday. So it's fun mm-hmm. and, and it holds up but only in spite of itself. So it's a fun episode, and it totally feels like TOS again. Because um, I, I mentioned that, uh, I believe, last week, that, that it just felt like an original series episode. You know, mm-hmm. um, There are a lot of recognizable story and style elements here. You know, Maltese Falcon, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Romancing the Stone. Just put in whatever adventure or mystery movie you want. Alan, just Alan Quartermain. I had to do Alan Quartermain. Do it. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, Tennessee Buck. Uh, you want to go with one of those? I have no idea what that is, but okay. Uh, yeah. All yeah, right. <laughs> um, it, just put it in there and, and it'll fit. Um, and it all kind of works, even if it's way less consequential about Star Trek than it is about Picard as a character. We just get to take Picard out of his element and let him do something else and, and let him relax and have a good time and have a good time the way Picard wants to have a good time. Um, it, that's all fine. It, it, it's all fine. And it really is one of those episodes where you just sort of turn a little part of your brain off, um, which sort of contradicts what you and I always said about an episode like, uh, like I mud, mm-hmm. 
where we got so much flack. So we, ah, you, you're just supposed to enjoy it. And, and you and I couldn't get past the problems of that episode. Right. Because we just watch it go, oh, really? Are the characters like this? This one is a little easier going down than that one was, even if I do have to turn off a little part of my brain. Maybe, again, just on the strength of Patrick Stewart, on the strength of Jennifer Hetrick, um, on the strength of just sort of the fun that it is. So, yeah, I gave it a pass, but there's not much more I can say about it in terms of it being just really a great standout episode. What about you? Eh, you have to, I mean, you have to do exactly what you what you said. And yeah. and look, if there was anything offensive, like truly offensive, and yes, you can. I mean, sure, there's a bit of sexism on display here. I mean, the fact that all the women are scantily clad, and and but the men are too. Yeah. But it's only, I mean, but again, I think it's like nine to one. Like, I mean, it, it's a bunch of scantily clad women and that guy. <laughs> and we spent and we spent a lot of camera time lingering yes, on the scantily clad women. But again, it's like, okay, what are we going to argue about here? The reality of production or maybe what the point was of having that to create the space to create that story. I, you know, that, that's a whole other essay yeah. to be written and hashed out. I yeah. mean, it's, I mean, so if you're looking for something to beat this episode up about, you could do that. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's also, that's also, you know, commercials for gum. So I yeah, mean, right. it's, it's, right. it's kind of tough to, to call this episode out specifically. Yeah. It's yeah. attitudes weren't necessarily sexist. The production sure as heck was, or at least parts yeah. of it were. Um, I just, you know, yeah, it, it's it's fine. It's not going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really the best I can say for it. I've gotten to a point now, season three, again, not to keep harping on this, but season three has shown us some really incredible stuff. I mean, you say this is a great episode about Picard as a character. Eh, I think. I mean, it's, it, it's he, he likes to have fun. Episode. He likes to have fun in a different way. No, it's okay. I interrupt you all the time. Please feel <laughs> feel free to try. <laughs> he he he. I mean, it shows us that he's a different kind of guy than all these other people. But I mean, that's really it, and it takes a really long time to do that. I guess maybe. And you are more familiar with old uh, with older movies than I am. I'm yeah. I'm a huge fan of some, but honestly, I can't remember if I've seen the Maltese Falcon. I knew it was calling to that. I knew it was referencing that. Would you personally go so far as to say this is an homage to that? No. no okay. No. It, it is literally, I mean, they did have the idea originally that this object that they found would be from the past. Mm. Uh, but then because of Star Trek, they're like, no, it will make it different. It's from the future. Okay. You know, so if it had stuck with an item from the past and then maybe that item did or did not actually have a value and then you, you crush it at the end. There are little things where you just go, uh, okay, it's not an homage, but clearly there's some influence. Somebody watched the Maltese Falcon and said, hey, huh, why don't we hide the thing in the statue and then we'll get it out of that later? You know, it, just little moments like that. It's just about creating that sense of adventure and the sense of mystery and, and tension. Who's got the object? Who will end up with it? Or will anybody end up with it in the end? That that's It's the MacGuffin. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say, I mean, it actually speaks um, highly of the Maltese Falcon that without even seeing it, I could tell you that it was based partly on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, right, that right. that's how deep into our society that is, you know, and same goes for Star Trek as well. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's, to me, the episode is fine. I mean, it, yeah. it's not, it, it's not one of the ones I would show someone on, so, on any level. <laughs> so if we had to sum it up in three words, we would say... Be sure to watch Captain's Holiday. It's not offensively stupid. More than three words, but yeah, I, I think. I well, would, well that, I that's my blur. My blur. We'll put it in quotes. Not <laughs> offensively stupid. Not that offensively stupid. The, that and goes that, on the DVD packaging. And that is three words. So well done. Uh, what about messages? Uh, it, well, don't trust anyone. <laughs> I mm. mean, is that a good message? No, that's that's horrible. Um, there's a there's a hint of shore leave in here. Uh, mm-hmm. Kirk's line: "The more complex the mind, the greater the need for the simplicity of play." We had a lot more fun with shore leave, though. Boy, did we have a lot more fun with shore leave. Um, so you could kind of make the argument for that. Picard is just—he's the worst version of Picard at the beginning of this episode. He, he's just sort of grumpy, and they say, "Hey, good job, Picard." Yeah, <laughs> that's all we get out of him. Um, 
so maybe there's a little bit of that there. But then we don't really get a true – I feel like a true Picard in this because throughout the series, we've seen Picard so diligent about making sure he's making the right decision. He's like, oh, uh, Ferengi? Uh, I'll punch him in the face. Oh, uh, the, the woman who's a human? I'll trust her. Oh, these guys who say they're an authority? Yeah, they. I, I'll trust them. Oh, wait, maybe I shouldn't. I, it's He's kind of all over the map in that respect. Yeah. Um, what about you? Um, be sure and check ID. Mm. And have something to check the ID against. Because <laughs> I mean, a hotel computer. <laughs> no, and what the, yeah, right. Exactly. So are these Vorgons from the future and the computer? Well, they say they are. Good enough for me. <laughs> well, if it's good enough for the computer, it's good enough for me. Although she didn't actually say it was good enough for her, did she? No. Mm, interesting no. question. Uh, you could certainly, um, and I hate this idea. I believe it was they might be giants who said, sure as you can't steer a train, you can't change your fate. Mm. And that's an idea that you you could look into the whole Vorgon thing and say, Okay, well, I mean, even if they do the loop over and over again, I mean, Picard actually says that to Vash at the end. She's like, oh, I wish we could do this. You know, I wish we had more yeah. time. And Picard's like, hey, you know, this may happen over and over again. So maybe we're doing this again right now. In fact, we are because, you know, time, huh? <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's really no changing it. Um, and, of course, I disagree with that. I mean, and you could say, well, obviously, I do agree with that because I think Data should quit trying. But I don't really think Data should quit trying. I think that's a conceit of that construct and that whole thing, and that's what bothers me. It's, right. it's, so you can't really talk about fate in this unless you're going to be a fatalist, which I don't think you, you can be. And obviously, neither are the Vorgons, even though they kind of are, because they go ahead and leave. Uh, now, now, wait a minute. Is this So are we with old Star Trek time travel stories? Where there is only one timeline, and a thing changes it from one to the other. So you you have the timeline in which you know Picard shows up and and they get the the, the device and they blow it up and the Vorkons like ah foiled again, but then they just go back in the same timeline a little bit before, rather than sort of say new Star Trek time travel where every time they do this, they're creating a new reality, a new universe, if you will, in which, uh, you know, Nero comes back and destroys the Kelvin. Okay. Holy cow. Are we actually going to hit on something in this episode? And is it going to take us this long to do it? Because here's the thing. The, the answer, Are, by the way, is no. <laughs> I don't know, though. The Vorgons have read it in their history, and they give it one good go to see if they can change it. And, oh, we couldn't change it. Okay, well, bye. <laughs> I mean, and that's that's pretty much it. They've they've decided now, based on not only their history but on their one attempt, are they done? Yeah. And is that sort of? I mean, is that <laughs> well, maybe, maybe? If at maybe. first you don't succeed, what's on television? Right, <laughs> that's the message of the story, oh, man. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's the problem with time travel. You can, you can, you can. It, uh, you know, who was it? Was it Altman who told us? Was it Mark Altman? Mm-hmm. Who told us if Star Trek doesn't know what to talk about? It talks about Shakespeare. Yeah. See also time travel. Because, right. I mean, if you're looking to put a layer of blow your mindedness on something, yeah, just throw in time travel. And that's right. got to be about a thing. They're just, maybe the Vorgons are just terrible at time travel. They, just, they, they have the ability, they're just really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe so. How can we get there five minutes earlier, though? We're always. Uh, <laughs> so I don't even know if we found messages, John. But do they hold up? I if it's if the message is check ID, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, always check ID. I don't care who you are, where you are, do that. And and if the message is maybe the same one from Shirley that every now and then you got to get out of the office and get some fresh air and, and maybe go have an adventure or two. And if in the course of that adventure um, you you meet a mate. And uh, and at the same time, you uh, you save your own history from uh, soldiers of the future. Great, good for you. Um, all those messages hold up, Ken. Oh well, fan- fantastic. Well, yeah. then we should just go ahead and let people know that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about all kinds of things from uh, from other entertainment things that Roddenberry is into to the Roddenberry Foundation. Uh, so much stuff at Roddenberry.com. Now, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next episode of Mission Log. Tin, man. 
no way, there's no comma. Tin Man. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Well, you know, it's interesting if you think about it, if they're traveling through space and time, presumably from their own planet or their own ship or whatever then the position of Risa in the sky is going to change over time. So, like, wherever they are, not only are they traveling through time, but they have to travel to the space that Risa was at that moment. Because they're like, oh, okay, well, we're going to go to Risa. It's sort of like the problem with the DeLorean and Back to the Future. Yeah, it's sort of like the problem of putting that guy back into his plane in, in All Tomorrow's Yesterdays. All of tomorrow's yesterday's. Yesterday's, tomorrow, tomorrow's <laughs> parties, whichever. Yeah. Yeah. Can you beat yeah, him up? Yeah, yeah. So he's sort of sitting in his plane. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and make sure his body doesn't fuse with the seat he's in this time, please. Yeah. And remember, he's going to be going a little fast. Right. Right. <laughs> he's 60, 70 miles per hour easy. So <laughs> compensate for that. And transmission.